Hello everybody and welcome to the centenary edition of What Would The Smart Party Do? It's great to be here and as always, this is my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? I'm really well mate, how are you doing? Yes, living the dream. I've got my school work out of the way for a little while and finally <laughs> I've got free time to do fun stuff again so that's alright. Mine's just come back with a vengeance. <laughs> yeah, given that it's a 100th episode as well, I thought I might as well get together the triumvirate, the three best UK role-playing podcasts in Britain, if not the world, together. So we've got representatives, first of all, from the Grognar Files, Dirk the Dice is with us. How are you doing, Dirk? Hiya, Gaz. Hiya, Baz. All right. Happy anniversary. I brought a party seven and some twiglets. Nice. Well, thank you very much. I think more more people should do this for the GMs as well, bring snacks. <laughs> or toilet rolls or something, just like something to contribute rather than coming down your house and just eating everything. It's all cheese and olives around here. <laughs> yeah. We've also got from the good friends of Jackson Elias, Mr. Paul Fricker. How are you doing, Fricks? Good evening. Yes, I'm here and I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me and happy anniversary to you both. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. What did you bring? <laughs> I bought nothing I'm afraid not oh. even my co-hosts well that's a gift in itself perhaps <laughs> a dubious gift nevertheless yeah right so I've been back looking through the archives uh, and the first podcast was back in 2015 wow. so I think that the, the blog was going a little bit before that when we erratically and occasionally posted stuff up but we started recording our conversations that we're having anyway uh, about four years ago. Uh, I'm just wondering, if, uh, I was going to ask you guys first of all, our glorious guests, what were you doing in 2015 and, and where were you up to with your role playing and podcasting or anything else you were doing at that time? Well, I, I, we started our podcast in uh, 2015, uh, but we're uh, a lot slower than you. So uh, we've got a lot uh, fewer uh, fewer episodes out. But yeah, we, we just started. And uh, at that time, I was playing uh, one game a month. Um, and I think we just come off the back of um, RuneQuest Borderlands and uh, we felt like we should find some more people to play with. So uh, let's start a podcast and see what happens. And uh, now I've barely seen my family. I'm playing that often. So <laughs> <laughs> It worked! <laughs> worked all too well. Yeah. And how about you, Paul? Yeah, I don't know. In 2015, I think we started the Good Friends podcast in about 2013. So I guess we were around show 50, something like that. Uh, and I don't know what I was doing gaming-wise. Uh, I think the Call of Cthulhu Keepers book came out in 2015. So the the, the, the Kickstarter delivered that year, in uh, the, the autumn of that year, I believe. So that was probably, you know, taking up quite a bit of my time running that at cons and things like that yeah yeah it's uh good times of course you're one of the co-authors of the new edition of uh Call of Cthulhu. yes along with uh mr mike mason uh we we worked on that that took up about i don't know <laughs> an inordinate number of years of my life from about 2008 to yeah i guess to you know when it was published really yeah so your family didn't see you either. I think there's a theme growing here. Yeah, there is a theme, isn't there? This is, this, is this why we do it? I don't know. I'm sure it's not really. No. So the Perry there both mentioned games that are really from the Chaosium stable. And I think if we go back five years or so, the Chaosium was not necessarily in a great place. It had been through a bit of a rocky patch. Um, and it wasn't very... wasn't as resurgent as it is now. If it sort of skips forward to, to current times, then... 
even people at D&D HQ who we've interviewed have been sort of saying like, oh, I hear like, Request is back and I hear Cthulhu's back and all this kind of stuff. And it, it seems that, generally speaking, Chaosium and, and other old school games have kind of come back to the fore and there's been a bit of a, what's all these new vampires back on the scene? Do we think there's kind of like a cyclic thing going on here where perhaps back back in the day when we were whippersnappers, D&D came out and RuneQuest was about the same time and Call of Cthulhu and then Vampire was the new kid on the block. And there seems to be old games are like back and new and fresh once more. I think we do like we do like the Kickstarter, don't we? And we do like the reissue of old products as well as new ones. But there's a, certainly a revival within Chaosium for, you know, they're really pushing um, on, on all the whatever you push on really they're 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 putting all their products out and um call of cthulhu seems to be going pretty strong the whole garantha thing seems to be going pretty strong um you know the board games and so on so yeah i mean looking back to five years ago i think gaz and baz i mean weren't we going to dragon meet and listening to seminars about how role-playing games are dying out that's probably (laughs) about five years ago right that's that's about right, yeah. Well, it was a perennial topic then, wasn't it? Definitely, because my my knowledge of Chaosium back then, or my my remembrance before it all came back to life, was that it never really died because convention games were always absolutely chocker with Call of Cthulhu games. Maybe less so RuneQuest, but these the Chaosium had dedicated conventions, and and you know the most hardcore of diehard fans, which definitely kept things going. But there was definitely a sense though that the mainstream didn't give much of a monkey's. Um, and in fact the mainstream just appeared to be perennially about to drop off a cliff and everyone would start playing video games instead despite all evidence to the contrary for the previous 20 years Um, (laughs) you know I think actually the hobby has probably gotten stronger every single year almost of its existence I can't back that up on anything apart from the fact that it's still here and bigger than ever well you mentioned um new old games being revived and i suppose uh we're riding on the coattails of that because our podcast talks about old games but i think the phenomenon that's happened over the last uh, five years as well as new gamers coming into the hobby um, which we'll perhaps talk about later but it's old gamers rediscovering the hobby and uh, playing again so things like RuneQuest and call of cthulhu and uh, warhammer and those games can benefit from that, can't they, in these new mm. editions? So, you know, and, and these people in the middle age have got uh, money to spend as well. So, obviously, it's attractive to um, games companies to pitch the products to them. And when you think five years ago, five years ago in the summer, um, the Guide to Glorantha won the Diana, Joan Award, Diana Jones Award. And that's when Moon Design uh, announced that they were taking over the management. And you've seen a, a massive resurgence in um, their line, haven't you, since then? And, mm. and you, again, you can see it in other, other games companies as well, re, reviving those old titles and uh, breathing new life into them. I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think it's um, a development. It's just an audience that's there that is taking the ball and running with it. Yeah, and I suppose that the other big thing, the big daddy that's that's the temperature gauge of all role playing, is D and D really. So I best best ask you then, Baz, as our D and D expert, he's <laughs> like as fifth sort of healed all the old wounds because it's it's perhaps more than five years ago, but there was a bit of an edition wars and the schism and those Pathfinder and three point five kind of adherence and fourth edition, and not everybody was that keen necessarily. But the new D and D now seems to have 
not only brought people together, brought a whole new bunch of people in. And if it's in one of the old cycles, we're on D&D 6 by now, but it still mm. seems like we're on D&D 5, and there's no sign immediately, or even talk of a new edition coming out. No, that's right. It's, uh, it came out in 2014, um, 5th edition, so it probably was picked up proper steam by, by the sort of time that we were going. Um, it, it's, done, it's done an awful lot. I mean, I think it's fair to say, uh, because I do remember it very, very well, that, that 5e came out to mixed reviews. Um, it had come off the back of a playtest that had been going on for a couple of years, an open playtest, which seems to be standard industry practice these days. It wasn't then. This was quite a big deal, you know, hundreds of thousands of D and D players, all inputting their 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 favourite kind of of D and D into a survey once a month and sending it back to Mike Mills to try and decipher. And that was pretty that was pretty rancorous actually, because obviously at that at that stage it was a bit like Brexit. Now you know everyone had their notion of what it, they wanted it to be, and people were getting factionalised and into camps and all the rest of it. And, and actually, again, I, I, I think I'm saying the truth here when I say that 5e came out and everybody thought, well, it's a bit of a compromise edition. It's a bit vanilla. It's a bit sludgy, almost. I remember people were complaining about the covers, saying they weren't really, doesn't really say Dungeons and Dragons on the cover. People were expecting, you know, some people wanted more a fourth edition. Some people wanted a great deal less a fourth edition. Impossible to please everyone, you would think. And then, I don't know, just by sheer tenacity, over the last five years, it's become not the only game in town, but for many, many people who just joined the hobby, it is literally the only game in town. Yeah, it seems massive. I mean, going back five years, the Milton Keynes Role Playing Games Club has been around for, I don't know, 15-odd years now. And it's a, it's a thriving little scene in Milton Keynes. And you know, we're getting about 50 people through the door each week on a Tuesday evening. Mm. And five years ago, I think people were turning up. I don't think there was any D&D running. I think there was, there was always some Call of Cthulhu, but there was quite a lot of indie games, and there was various other systems being played. There was a wide diversity of games played. Uh, and like you said, Dirk, it was mostly old gamers. We'd sort of ask people, oh, well, you know, what brought you along to the club? Oh, well, you know, I used to play when I was at university, and then I dropped out for a few years, and... You know, now I've got a bit of time and money and I've kind of got back into the hobby and I saw the, the club. Now I go along there and there are people turning up like 18, 19 year olds. And I say, well, what brought you to the club? And they say, well, uh, I want to play D&D. And I'm like, oh, uh, you know, how did you find out about it? You know, and like, oh, I saw it online. Did you know anybody who plays? No. <laughs> Imagine that. You're a role player. You don't know any other role players. How does that happen? Surely it's, you know, that's not how genes are spread. <laughs> it's like it's people spontaneously becoming zombies rather than getting bitten, yeah. isn't it? It doesn't seem <laughs> Well, hello. Mike Mason here. Who'd have thought people wanted to listen to two old blokes moaning about role-playing games for 100 episodes? But apparently they do. Well, well done, Baz and Gaz. Here's to 100 more. Well, I'm wondering whether, like, we're all obviously the, at the the pinnacle of uh, podcasting, and so we've got you know lots of glorious listeners and a great <laughs> a great network of contacts. But I do wonder, with our talk of old games and and being in middle age ourselves, whether we're kind of like the the MySpace or the Facebook of online presence, and you know streamers of the Snapchat and the the kids' generation. But a podcast do seem popular between us, but streaming sort of like strips that away as much as 
yeah. D&D strips away other role-playing games, if, if that seems fair. Yeah, I'm, yes. I'm more of a Bebo myself, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're more like the Radio 4, and, uh, and that's not a bad thing to be, frankly. Class. But it's talk radio, isn't it? You know, it's talk radio. But it's like, um, it's like when people get excited about releasing a role-playing game, and it sells quite a bit. And we were talking to uh, Gareth Hanrahan, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, mm. weren't we? And he's he's getting yeah. into publishing fiction, proper novels and stuff, and it's exponentially different. And then you can think about George R. R. Martin, who wrote books, and then his stuff got on the telly, exponentially different. And then you talk about stuff like the Avengers being in the movies, and and they are all different worlds of of just massive amounts of audience that. That, that simply does, you know, the, the best we could ever do on a podcast won't be anything that would be clipped off a toenail and thrown away by someone in telly. <laughs> I'm waiting for the smart party of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, like Bad Boys 3, yeah. Found in seven countries. <laughs> yeah, so if people had filmed us at Gen Con back in the day when Baz was sleeping in a bath and there's other shenanigans going <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think um, I think a really good lesson for that is uh, Matt Colville, and um, and I've been around long enough and been on enough internet forums in the past to remember Matt Colville when he was just a dude that I would have, you know, good conversations with on RPG Net, and he would get slated by some and, and lauded by others. He was just a dude on RPG Net, uh, but now he's raising like millions of dollars on Kickstarter simply by adding a video camera to his otherwise, you know, normal effervescent, really interesting chat. Don't take anything away from the guy, but all he's done is put it on video. I say that's all he's done. There's obviously a bit more to it than that, but that on its own has turned him into you know a million dollar Kickstarters, um, and it appears to be overnight. And again, it isn't. Work goes into that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think these, uh, the people listening to this in their earpods, if they're out for a walk with the dog, which I imagine they probably are on a Sunday morning, I'm really, really grateful they do because nobody wants to see these faces today. <laughs> <laughs> Faces for radio, yeah. The, the, the new people who are coming through, though, are not coming through, I don't think, necessarily the streaming route. I think it is from um, mainstream media. And D&D is a recognisable brand, isn't it? And mm. um, they come in, you know... I see people in uh, my local town who... They're, they're not hobbyist gamers. They're, it's, a, it's a mainstream thing for them. They're playing D&D with friends because they live in the centre and um, spaces of a premium. So they meet together in a cafe and they play D&D and they play other board games and I don't think they would recognise themselves in the same way as us, as, as, as we uh, recognise ourselves as gamers. They've come through uh, Big Bang Theory or because they love Game of Thrones or because they love the Peter Jackson um, Lord of the Rings uh Films and they want to replicate that somehow, and D and D being a recognisable brand, that's what they latch onto. But I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I ran a game on the starter set of D and D for a group of friends because they wanted to see it because they heard about it on the Big Bang Theory, and they loved it. You know, you could. It, it was like um, it was like it used to be in the old days. You could see people's eyes lighting up. Uh, looking in horror when they realised that they were facing certain death at the hands of goblins and how you know they had to think differently than they would uh, at a board game. So that, that kind of stuff is really good to see uh, new players. But I think that's where they're coming from. I think they are coming from that mainstream media towards the hobby. I think that's, there's an element of truth. I, I think it's possibly 
uh, you can't really discount the streaming route, I would say. No. Um, for example, my local gaming store, the, the guy there says he, get, he gets people down who've watched Critical Role or whatever and come down going, I like, have you got the Critical Role book? And he's like, what do you mean, do you mean like D&D? It's like, you'll um, leave this to play. And like, you know, that you can have this supplement as well, but that kind of stuff. Uh, and Neil Gow, another good friend of the show, he's he started, uh, he's just left the job now, but he did work at a university and he started a games club there and had 20 people. And out of those 20, 19, they come to the games club via Critical Role. The wow. one person who hadn't was him. <laughs> but literally everybody else had watched the streaming show and gone, yeah, we'll, we'll do some of that, please. I really must watch it. I've never seen it. Do, and, yeah, I was going to ask, do you, other three guys, do you watch like streaming shows or games on YouTube? I listen, I've listened to actual play, you know, through my ears on the, like a podcast. But, you know, a few years ago, if you'd have said to me that people would sit around watching, I don't know, well, like computer games or other people playing computer games or other people playing role playing games, say, well, you're onto a loser there, mate. Yeah. Nobody's going <laughs> to want to do that. It's, it's what not, do I know? It's not a spectator sport, is it? I always say it's like being a eunuch in a brothel. You know, being part of a <laughs> being part of a game is playing the game, isn't it? And, and being part of it, I can't, I can't see any enjoyment. Although I have participated in actual plays, I don't think I would listen to them regularly or watch them. Or watch streaming. Although, but it is a massive thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it tough. I've tried a lot with a lot of them, and. I can't do it. Like, but like, if I'm sat playing a game and I haven't had a go in tennis for 15 minutes, I start getting itchy in my seat and want, you know, yeah. try not to talk over people. It's like, come on, when's my turn? So to sit there for four hours and listen to other people talk about it, it's just like, no, I, I want to go now. Like, I, want, <laughs> I wonder if this is because, uh, you know, as uh, we, we've kind of grown up with a TV set in the room and you watch the TV. You'd, you know, I didn't. I don't. I don't watch TV generally and do other things. If I'm watching mm-hmm. a film, I'm watching the film. Whereas I was sat with somebody, you know, of a younger age group, and uh, they were like, she was like watching. She was working on her computer, and she got a phone with a, a film on or something. And then she got something else, you know, on headphones, and it was like three different sort of media coming at her, and it was like, well, how do you process all that? Because I, <laughs> I just do one thing at a time. I can't multitask. So I think maybe with the streaming, do people just kind of half watch it and half do something else? I don't know. But I think that's exactly it. I mean, I went on a driver's awareness course a few years back for, you know, definitely didn't do anything wrong. I was unjustly caught by a <laughs> camera that was clearly faulty. <laughs> like like everybody there, right? else in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was literally the only person who said it was fair enough. Everybody else was like, it wasn't me, your police cars followed me. And like, they all had excuses like... For God's sake, people, we're all here for a reason. But anyway, they did a bit where they sort of they played you some audio and had something to read at the same time and sort of showed you that you can't do two things at once. So it is a surprise to me that kids these days seem to do it. But we had um, Dave Walters on, who's on the LA by Night, the the vampire sort of live stream game, um, and he said that he reckons a lot of people mum watch, as he calls it, are you doing the ironing and you have it on the background, and so like. Uh, you probably hear from him. He's guys of the Baron, actually. I'm going to intersplice some nice uh, comments we've had from some of our previous glorious guests. I should probably warn listeners of that now. Or, or delight listeners, rather than warn. Perhaps that's a better phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, if you hear weird voices, we haven't got peoples in our houses. It's just it's guests from previous shows have been spliced in. Greetings, Baz and Krantz and gentle Gaz and Stern. It is I, your old friend, Kenneth Height, from Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. 
and I've been informed that this is your hundredth episode. Well, that's quite good, isn't it? A hundred whole episodes. Well done. Well done indeed. Yeah, but I think that's that's partly it. And I've, I've certainly experienced similar like my mates goes about his two sons and stuff, and it, they have like the, the, they'll have FaceTime or whatever with, with their friends they're talking to while playing a computer game that has invoice audio and stuff like that in the game, but they have a separate app to do that with, and they've got a YouTube channel going of someone else playing the game they're currently playing, but in a different you know they have all these different stimulus coming in. For me, it just seems crazy. I don't know how you process it, but then. If you've grown up that way, I guess it's just normal. You, you deal with it. Yeah. What do you say, Baz? You've got kids. Well, it, it's definitely the case, you know, that um, that I'm probably the last holdout for scrolling through the TV schedule to see what's on, and my kids <laughs> don't understand what that even means because stuff is available when you want it, right? And what's this pesky advert doing in a way? Are you mad? <laughs> so, and I totally get that. You know, I could. I've, I've just about moved my household is moving away from having like any kind of television as we used to know it and and it has been sort of like day by day drip feeding into everybody's got a screen in front of them and we do watch as a family but you know I'd, I would never think I physically had the time to watch a four hour episode of a D&D actual cast um, I mean I, th- I think Apocalypse Now is a great film but it starts to get tiresome after a couple of hours I mean four hours of, of something no isn't no by Francis Ford Coppola is, is madness but but if you if you try and watch it like a film, but if you just try and watch it like you listened to Radio One back in the day while you were ironing your pants, then it's that's fine because it just kind of drips in. I can't believe people are staring at the screen for the whole for the entirety of two seasons of Critical Role, and, and I that, enjoy Critical Role. I think it's good. I can't know? believe that you are ain't in your pants. Well, you should see them; they're enormous. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, um, I do have a theory. I, uh, my theory for for new gamers is this: I think you know, if you go back back to when we were playing back in the eighties, the nineties, and all the way through our gaming uh, hobby careers, there has always been, and certainly at conventions, you will see this. There's always been what what sometimes has been called the casual player. Um, and at, at certain times they can be a real annoyance you know the people who don't seem to be terribly engaged maybe you know idly doodling on their character sheets or spinning their dice and even at conventions I've had more than one person say is it okay if I just sit down and listen to the game and not play mm. which which I've said well why on earth would you do that if you're going to sit down and listen you might as well if I say what would you do you're not going to not answer are you so at that stage you're playing but generally there has always been a proportion of people who are want to be into gaming in a very kind of like I'm just happy to observe kind of way. Sometimes they sit at your table and and you know they sit there and might do some knitting or sort of these days browsing on their phones or whatever. Those casual gamers, I think it turned out that there were hundreds of thousands of them. Mm. More than that. And actually those are the people who now can engage with the hobby because they don't really have to push themselves out there because Let's face it, when you describe it to people who don't know what gaming is, it can feel a bit intimidating if you say, oh yeah, we just pretend to be other people. No, 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 we don't dress up. No, you don't have to speak in a funny accent, but it does go on for four or five hours at a time, and you do have to go around other people's houses, and we have got paraphernalia, but no, it's not a cult. So, you know, now it's just, I think it's much more accessible to people who just want to want to treat it as one of many things they do, as opposed to us, where it is the only thing we do. Well, I guess another thing I've seen that's happened over a few years was the demise of UK Role Players Forum and several other forums as it happens. And mm. I think partly that was down to, and, and 
sort of you and I buzz of express frustration that you try and start threads and get conversation going and nobody's really, really engaged. There's the same half a dozen or a dozen people that might you know, tell you their opinion and you knew what their opinion was anyway. So what's the point? And I know there's like RPG net is still good and stuff like that, but a lot of forums seem to have very few interactive participants and then you look at who's online and it's a thousand people, but there's only ten people speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that community is out there. There's just a lot of content consumers and the four of us are probably different in the way content providers to an extent that we want to say stuff and have opinions and talk about things and you know generally chew the fat in gaming and how, how do you two feel about uh, being podcasters then in terms of how your content is consumed do you feel like people are getting a lot out of it do you get do you you know jealously guard how many listeners or likes or reviews you get anything like that does every little plus one you get on a on a podcast give you a little thrill or a buzz or are you happy just you know because you're chatting to your mates anyway so who cares what everyone else thinks i think it's i do look at how many shares i get on twitter or facebook or whatever it's 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 partly a comparative thing to sort of think how many times has this been viewed or shared compared to previous episodes is this one more popular are we kind of reaching out to people uh and as a podcaster I don't know about you guys, but you don't necessarily get that much feedback from people. You know, you're putting out content, but you're not necessarily hearing that much back. Um, so when people do contact you and make a comment or say something, they might not really think that's very significant. But it is because, you know, it's like the old thing of when people used to write a letter to the BBC. It was, you know, one letter sort of represented X hundred or thousand people because they knew that. That such a small percentage of people would actually take the effort to put pen onto paper sounding rather archaic there but as if anyone (laughs) would ever do that um so so yeah i think it is it is nice having the, the 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 comments from people and also i mean five years ago did we have patreon i'm not sure when that started not quite i don't think so don't think so but obviously the fact that people are putting money in something that they can you know get for free anyway um you know that's a kind of putting your money where your mouth is that's kind of saying yeah we like this thing mm. um so that's that's a nice feedback as well and we're gamers aren't we so it is the gamification of the experience that we enjoy isn't it so i i started life as a twitter account uh dirt the dice started life as a twitter account I spend too long on Twitter. My phone is welded to my hand um, <laughs> because it is a good way of getting um, a response. Um, and it probably matches my uh, attention span as well. So putting pithy comments out and letting them burn out because that's what happens in uh, Twitter. You won't get any long discourse. You'll just get a, an idea thrown out and it'll either have legs or it'll fall away um so i do enjoy that as for um the feedback um you, you don't you don't get much but i do have a sense that there's a community that's built around um the grognard files um and i think it's because certain groups of people in the uk have started to rediscover games at the same time and started to communicate each other and using the podcast as a focal point to do that um and we have the meet up in manchester grog meet so that that's enough feedback and i think i always say that i would i don't really count the number of listeners i just count the 
I'd prefer to have a small group of loyal people who are enjoying it, and if other people enjoy it, that's great, rather than counting the volume. Um, mm. That's my, that's my feelings on it. Yeah, yeah I think the uh, the communities um, that are around our podcast and everybody else's podcasts, or around publishers, or even around systems, those communities are absolutely there. It's just atomized a little bit because there's no real central hub for people to go to. There's no one one place that everyone goes to but you know the venn diagrams of of our glorious listeners all interlap don't they across yeah, the three podcasts yeah. that we have yeah. here massively um and that venn diagram then extends off to stuff like you know german gaming conventions or zine writers in california or whatever label you want to put on it and they're, they're all everything's connected and that's the difference isn't it over the last five years it's just how connected things have become even though they've been atomized you can do it all from your bedroom now and that includes playing. And I think, you know, the major shift that I've seen is um, I may be these days probably able to play more games than I ever could back in the day. All I've got to do is open up my laptop and not actually leave my house at all. So there was no point in ironing those pants, ironically, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to pop them on anymore. Because the, the amount of gaming that's out there is so easy to access. And that's incredible. I think that's amazing. The fact that the four of us can have a dis this discussion at all may not really have been that possible five years ago. Euer Pferd ist nicht müde. Euer Pferd ist energetisch. Sehr energetisch sogar. Lieber Gas, lieber Bas, hier ist Fabian von The Kraken in Deutschland. Ich gratuliere euch sehr herzlich zu 100 Episoden von What Would The Smart Party Do? Ich erwarte von euch natürlich 1000 Episoden, mindestens. Damit ihr das schafft, werden wir beim Kraken weiterhin tolle Gäste einladen, sodass ihr einfach nur mit ein paar spannenden Fragen im Gepäck über den Kanal hüpfen müsst, um bei uns einen tollen Podcast aufzunehmen. Ich freue mich auf ein baldiges Wiedersehen und bis dahin, Prost! I just should give out a shout out at this point to Andrew McLaren, who's in Wellington, New Zealand. But thanks for your missive. He sent us a, a letter after that, the, the last episode we did, and it was full of like basically his gaming years in the 80s. It just put like quite a lot of stuff down. So thanks for getting in touch and telling us about all your experiences on literally the other side of the world, which is something, <laughs> as you say, like a few years ago, that just wouldn't have happened, would it? Yeah. And do you know, do you know what's uh, really rewarding? I don't know if this happens to you guys, is that. An episode that you put out a while ago suddenly finds somebody and they respond to it um, mm. and they find something in something that you have forgotten about from two years ago. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's really good because it, it, it reminds you that it's not just the one that you're working on at the moment that's uh, reaching people. There's a whole catalogue of them out there that people mm. are finding for the first time. Yes. It's absolutely true. And when I, when I come across a, a podcast, um, I've recently started listening to Fear of a Black Dragon. I had listened to them back in the day. I don't know why I stopped. It's great stuff. Really good. So, you know, covers the kind of stuff that I like. Um, and when I, when I realized that there was, I don't know, 20, 30 episodes, I didn't go back in time order and listen to the most recent, then the one before that, then the one before that. You kind of pick and choose. And it's like, it's like going to the pick and mix shop, really. So I'm getting all excited about an episode that they've long forgotten about, mm. and yeah. <laughs> and I, but I, you know I still like fire off a few words of encouragement to them, and you know and they were good enough to come back and say, oh, thanks very much for getting in touch. So you know those lines of communication are still open, and that's great because that's 
that's kind of the equivalent of like you know 10 15 20 years ago going to a convention and and saying does anybody want to play against the hill giants and bringing out an old module and some people going oh yeah i've always wanted to do that those kind of shared experiences are so much easier to have now yeah it's funny isn't it occasionally i get something on twitter going uh, I don't know, something like, no, you're completely wrong about RuneQuest. Uh, you said this, that, and the other. I think, did I? When was that? And I, you, know, you have to get in a conversation to find out it was like two and a half years ago. And you know, your own opinion might have changed in the intervening time. But to someone else, it's immediate, isn't it? They've just literally just listened to it and gone, that's wrong. I'm going to have to go and tell them now. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's good to get the engagement, at least. Yeah, which is the opposite of Twitter, isn't it? Of what Dirk was saying about those kind of fast burn conversations that come and go. The trouble is the content stays out there forever, so you've got to be careful what you say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely our watchword. Being careful what you say. <laughs> but there's a, there's a current thing about um, podcasts and games, I think, that once the podcast stops being put out, then people, you know, it... it slowly kind of dies off people aren't going to new people aren't going to go back and look at the back catalogue as readily and i think the same with games if they're not yeah. if there's not a new mm. edition out if they're not if there's not a buzz about it it just kind of fades away and however good the game was it just kind of dies away and i think that's one of the things about dnd it's it's such a a good edition um that it's just sort of you know it, it's staying up there and we see it with like we were talking about all these kickstarters for for old games you know, it kind of fascinates me why we need new games all the time. Because aren't there plenty of good games already? <laughs> I don't. I don't think necessarily we do need them. <laughs> We've got groaning shelves full of them. But, yeah. but there is a buzz about the latest thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think we've mentioned Patreon, and we'll probably mention Kickstarter very shortly as well. But one of the things seems to be at the minute is that people want to monetize what they're doing. We're obviously very grateful to all our respective Patreon followers that keep us on the air, etc., etc. But like some people seem to be looking for a game to make in order to then make some money. And mm. most of the seasoned games people that we speak to say, well, don't do that. If you're writing a game, it should be because you think, I want this game, it doesn't exist yet. Or I've seen a similar game, but I think I can do it better, and this is what I would do. So there's lots of as much as people are making podcasts in the bedroom they're also writing games or doing whatever else but the right way in inverted commas to approach that is to I want to make this game so I'm going to make it uh, and there seems a weird thing well not weird but it's probably an unfortunate thing with monetization of gaming content that some people seem to be looking to make a game to make some money which you know how do you make a small fortune in role playing you start with a large fortune it's that, that kind of thing so um, but yeah I think new games people just still excited about gaming and want to make another game don't they like it just happens all the time yeah yeah and i have heard people sort of say that you know they want to be signing books at a convention and it's like well you probably need to write a book then because <laughs> 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 that's kind of the difficult bit yeah um, yeah. yeah dennis Stetwiller was on uh, a, a couple yeah. of weeks ago and he's very good at advocating for this on twitter when people ask him like oh how can i do this and how can i have that and whatever he's like well, make some stuff. Like, you know, <laughs> all the things you want, like, you have to make it. Like, just do yeah. it, get started, get on with it. You know, that's not, I can't give you magic secrets about how to write a book or how to become a better artist. It's just like, put some grafting. That's how, that's how it happens. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and I, I know Mike Mason has the same thing with people contacting him about scenario submissions. And they're like, well, you know, how do I go about, you know, getting it published and, you know, all these things? It's like, well, have you written it yet? No, well, not yet. 
Well, write it and send it to me, and then we can talk. But until you've done that, so you know, to, I think you know people out there, they, they if if you haven't written stuff and you want to, just just write it because. Um, what do you think, Baz? It's not that difficult, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not. It turns out copy and paste is your friend, uh, as is, you know, <laughs> open game license, SRDs, and the fact that people will just put anything on the internet as if you couldn't nick it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is hard. You know it's yeah. hard better than anyone. I mean, you know how many hours it takes putting every colon in the right place and those those numbers just keep moving around and stuff just keeps sliding about all over the place. It's mad how much effort goes into writing what is essentially still with role-playing game. It's got to be like a, an evocative read, but also an instructional textbook at the same time. And if you don't put like a glorious art all over it, people won't buy it. It's mad. The stuff yeah. you have to put into it. I think game. you've got to be a bit mad to do it. I think you know, oh, you've got to be like crazy. Captain, Captain Beefheart locked away in that shack <laughs> working on uh, yeah. Trout Mask replica or whatever. And it's bonkers, but in, in the same way, though, it's never been so easy to do. It's never been so easy to get published, you know, with the DMs Guild, if you're into your D&D stuff, or drive-through, and yeah. you know, you've got a word processor in your phone, for goodness sake. You know, it is actually, in some ways, it's never been easier to do. But the standards have have crept, crept up, I think. Um, and I think the art thing is something that's probably worth mentioning. It might bring us back around to Kickstarter, but is it possible to put out something... You know, Dirk, you, you guys, and, and so do you, Paul. You put out fanzines, which I think initially, if you don't mind me saying, were kind of like, you know, a bit tongue-in-cheek, perhaps. Mm. But actually, they're black-and-white photostatted jobs, which have got so much charm, and I love reading them. Would you want to see them on... Could you imagine them on game shop shelves next to, like, 13th Asian Glorantha, which is, like, full colour, and you could kill a man by dropping it on them? It's just <laughs> a different thing, isn't it? I am a rank amateur, so I'm, I'm happy with the photocopy. Well, I loved hearing your interview, uh, Dirk, with um, uh, Ken. Um, oh, my God, is Andre? Saint Andre, yes. And uh, you know, he was talking about how you know you could see the the rounding uh, of of some of the letters in in the type because he just typed it on his uh, typewriter at home, which was like built in 1910 or something. <laughs> Um, and um, you know, I think there is, yeah, there is an appeal for that kind of handmade, handcrafted thing. We see that on Kickstarter. You know, the deluxe editions—they're kind of like special editions. I mean, they're they're like mm. the other end. They're top, top quality, but there's this kind of limited, sort of handcrafted, almost kind of um, special thing that you're getting. Whether it be kind of low-end, grimy, kind of fanzine level, or like the deluxe leather version, people want something. That they're not necessarily going to walk into the game shop and buy. I think they want something special, whether it's nostalgia, like for us for picking up fanzines that were published by people, you know, sent out through the post, or I don't know, it's just something special, isn't it? That's different and uh, unique. Hey, this is Robert Schwal, but I'm just offering my congratulations to you, fine fellows. However, you should be warned: the demon lord's coming for you. And when he does, there will not be a clean room left, or underwear for that matter. Thanks, guys, for all you do. Hail the Demon Lord. Yeah, definitely. I'm talking of special and unique, <laughs> as we all are. <laughs> but I was thinking of um, 
like we'll probably get onto the critical role kickstarters. I'll mention that very shortly now because we we'll get to that point. But uh, a lot of the guys who do the streaming uh, do D and D in a castle now. I don't know if you've seen that. It happened last year, for sh- and it's going to happen this year. And it's somewhere up near Newcastle, like about you know, just go up to Newcastle and turn left. It's based on there, and it looks like a big old keep. Right. Uh, and they're charging hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars for the accommodation. And you, you know, it has Satin Phoenix and Dave Walters. I mentioned a variety of other people go and, and GM games for the weekend, and it is not cheap. But it looks wow. cool. I think possibly, I don't want to slight anyone, certainly not the Colonials, but possibly if you're an American, it looks amazing. To those of us who've played lots of games in, for example, German castles all the time, and I was like, you know, <laughs> D&D castles, like, why don't you play Cthulhu in a castle? I'd much rather, you know, uh, and, and for a fraction of the cost. But it definitely seems there's a lot more money flying around, and there's almost like personalities, like I don't want to call like TV stars or anything like that, but certainly streamers can now attract people who want international flights to a castle to play just for a weekend and spend a lot of money on it. And the Critical Role Kickstarter to make a cartoon of one of their games that they ran through made about $11 million just recently. So the amount of money currently aimed towards gaming adjacent stuff, if not actual gaming and game books, is now a ridiculously larger amount than used to be available, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, still a, a tiny fraction of a percent of, uh, you know, the computer game industry. I mean, drop in the ocean to that, I guess. But um, but yeah, it does seem like there is, I, don't know, I guess there's this accessibility and, you know, through Twitch and Patreon and so on, people, if they enjoy content and there's plenty of people in the gaming hobby, you know, like we talked earlier, middle-aged guys or whatever they've got some money and if they enjoy something they're going to think well yeah i'll spend some money on it because it's no great hardship to me Uh, and i want it to keep going i think there's a market for experiences now isn't there um Mm. you know people uh, because physical stuff uh is kind of gone in the light of the internet like books and uh things like that actual experience is what people crave but it's that internet model i've heard it described as the long tail where you know, there's a, a spike, um, a market for a mainstream or um, uh, big products, and then it kind of dissipates into long, long, with like very atomized audiences uh, for content. You know, the fanzines and uh, the communities. So, I think that's it's it it's a product of the technology, and um, you know, audiences um, crave. Uh, crave physical experiences but there's also uh, room for handmade smaller things that's that's what I, that's what I think is I don't think I'd ever uh, pay to play D&D in a castle I don't think I would No I think it might actually be a function partly that certainly for the rest of us guys who've been to lots of conventions we used to do it in a cheap and cheerful fashion Exactly yeah so, you know, it's like a, a holiday camp in November, December off season, where it's you know hurricane winds and whatever else. But it's a, you know cheap accommodation, the space to play some games. So that mm. we've like done the hard times in the trenches almost. So it seems if you're spending a lot of money, you, you, you might look at two weeks in the Bahamas or something for the sort of <laughs> you know money thing. Yeah, I, I always I always think it's remarkable that people describe Grogme as a convention when all it is is a room hired in the centre of Manchester and it looked like a shed. I mean, you saw it, Gaz. Didn't you? I mean, it looked practically not built, but it's the people, isn't it, that um, uh, that it attracts and brings together. That is the uh, experience. Um, but you're right, Gaz. I think. You know, it's just a part of that 
thing of trying to monetize it, trying to find it. But I think people should be thankful that it's small. Mm. Yeah, it seems it's very similar to a lot of conventions I've been to, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it, it might look like a shed to you, but you know, Baz and I probably fall as well. We're at uh, Gen Con Minehead, which is a big circus tent that leaked oh. <laughs> with arc lights set up in the corners. It, it was horrible. <laughs> at least had a roof. <laughs> Cardboard roof, but it was a roof. <laughs> so, Dirk, worst. I was going to ask if... Um, you know, you've you've kind of like set out your stall for like getting involved in the hobby back in the day and and talking about the games from back in the day. Um, I mean, I know you play new games too, and that's that's cool. But I mean, is there such a thing as a dead game? Does that does that parlance even matter anymore? Because aren't games all available forever? Really, to Paul's point about why are people writing new things? Really, because you know, if you want to play Psy World or something obscure like that that's still entirely possible isn't it and and you know you can build you can get an audience for for any old thing right absolutely i think that's it it, everything's there now isn't it so i think part of um part of the mission is to try and find those dead games and revive them and uh, Mm. see if they're worth bringing back to life that's uh, part of the pleasure isn't it um you know there are some games that probably deserve still to be dead. I'm not naming any names, <laughs> <laughs> but it does. It, it clearly doesn't take much to bring a game back to life, does it? It's just talking about it and saying I'm going to run a game is enough, isn't it? I mean, there's been plenty of times where Gaz and I have, have sort of got together and said like, you know, what do you want to run? And and as soon as you say it, I don't know it could be anything, it could be Orpheus, a, a kind of an offshoot of a White Wolf game from the '90s. All you got to do is say it out loud, and people go. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, of course, I'd love to, and that's all it takes, isn't it? It's just an excited person who's usually the GM. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) almost exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, this is Morris here. Happy 100th episode to Gaz and Baz, and congratulations on being the sixth best tabletop RPG podcast in the world. Woohoo! So, Paul, your sort of area of expertise probably is Call of Cthulhu, which seems to be like, I don't want to say dead, but it won't die, for sure. It's like, it's always there. <laughs> How do you think it, do you think it stays fresh even? Or, because things like Horror on the Orient Express or Mass on the Alphatep, these are all coming back. Everybody's as super excited now as they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago, this kind of stuff. Mm. It's, you know, Cthulhu is fundamentally the same sort of game it ever has been for like quite a number of years now. But it still seems to be very popular and fresh armor. So, have you got any ideas about what you can attribute that to? Uh, I think the accessibility is a thing that you can get people in and sit them down, and they're like, "Oh, what's this all about?" Well, you're just a regular person, uh, and it's maybe it's modern day. You know, you're just somebody from your town. Okay, well, that's easy to buy into. So it's it, there's not a lot of um, setting to to learn, and indeed, perhaps it's better not to know it. So it's pretty accessible in that respect um i think in terms of the old campaigns coming out like master north tap and you know maybe other products that, that are going to be revamped and revisited there's there's an appeal to those perhaps a bit of nostalgia and perhaps you know it's the best ones that are you know being reworked and coming back um and new scenarios and new campaigns um why it stays popular yeah i think it's just a, a kind of an easy thing to buy into it's a horror game horrors 
you know perennially kind of a popular genre so i'm thinking one of the things about D, for example that seems to have i don't know whether this is added to its current longevity and its current edition but they've really reduced the amount of content they're putting out for it mm. in terms of like you get very few books whereas uh chaosium seem to take on the opposite route and for RuneQuest and cathedral and everything there's just like produced more and more content which probably people were crying out for at one stage because books were so few and far between so i can't really see any pattern there between what the big leader's doing and what perhaps smaller yeah. companies that are still quite large are doing. Yeah, but if you consider that um, D&D books, you know, their release numbers have gone down and Call of Cthulhu's has gone up, they've probably met probably about on the same level now, <laughs> I imagine. Mm. I don't know how many books they put out last year and how many books, like, both companies put out, but it's maybe not that far apart now. Um, and I think that that definitely is one of the appeals of Fifth Head, I think, is the almost the lack of content, you know, just a sensible amount of content. Mm. Do you know, I think uh, Call of Cthulhu has been helped by the release of Pulp Cthulhu because it's injected some adventure into a familiar setting um, and given people license to be heroes in, in a traditional sense um, in, in a Call of Cthulhu setting. I'm just playing uh, the two-headed serpent uh, working through this. I don't want to blow smoke up uh, Paul's uh, fundament, but it is... <laughs> A brilliant campaign, and this is a—you know—this is destined to be a classic uh, because it's really well written and it's full of exciting situations. And I don't think necessarily other Call of Cthulhu, um, uh, you know, the, the back catalogue necessarily contains exciting situations. I just want to say for our listeners that uh, Paul's <laughs> he was treated to a vision of his own book being waved in front of his face enthusiastically right there, like well thumbed and full of post-it notes and a couple of bits of paper. Which yeah, is how marvelous. Should. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. It was, I mean, it was a pleasure working on it, and I think I've been involved in a few projects, and you know, seeing how things get written. Um, and seeing how the, you know, behind the curtain, if you like, I think, you know, there are some product, some projects in the, the role-playing games hobby, which you were talking about monetizing things. I think there are some things that get monetized that perhaps there isn't that passion behind them. Um, and I think if you're going to do it, do it, A, because you love doing it, and well, I don't know, B, because you love doing it. Because, you know, you, you, you wake up th and you're thinking about it and you go to bed and you're thinking about it. And, you know, you're driving around in your car and it's going around in your head. That's when, you know, that's when it's actually working. If you're having to sort of think, oh, I've got to do that thing. And, you know, it's so many cents per word. I need to, you know, I'll just make this thing called, uh, rather than calling it the gun, I'll call it the special big gun every time because that's three words and that'll be extra sense. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> it's there's got to be a passion behind these things. And certainly with Two-Headed Serpent, you know, we were all fired up about it. And uh, and I think that, you know, I'm seeing that more and more, that enthusiasm for the, for the, the games being written and, and run because of, you know, the amount of content that, that's coming out. Um, you know, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's just more lifeblood in it. This is Greg Stolze, known for the One Roll Engine, Delta Green, and Unknown Armies. I'd like to congratulate the Smart Party and endorse them in the strongest possible terms, as they have always been 
extremely generous when it comes to listening to me go on and on about my crap. So where do you see everything going in the next five years? I'll ask you, Baz, because in the next five years, surely we should have a new edition of D&D. It can't last another five years, can it? You'd think, wouldn't you? But there seems to be no sign, is there? I mean, I think when we were lucky enough to have Mike Merles on, if if he let anything slip, and he was obviously going to keep his cards pretty close to his chest, but he was talking about there being extra games that are titled Dungeons & Dragons, colon, something. So, that, that you know, that's that's just a mind-blowing idea that it might be a science fiction Dungeons & Dragons, and they actually keep those words on, on the cover. Um, and, and I think they're just, they seem to be just digging in deep. I mean, the D&D plan from third edition onwards was to have an evergreen what they call an evergreen which is something that you would have on the shelves and and it might it might well change the covers you never think twice about this happening in fiction books do you you know if you pick up like a, a copy of stormbringer as in the the book by michael moorcock or Elric, any of those elric books they must have had 20 30 40 covers by now the hmm. words inside haven't particularly changed but they've done everything to make it stay on the shelves that happens with fiction all the time it happens with records all the time kids remember albums you know the sort of special editions and remixes and so on nobody bats an eyelid and i think that's what wizard of the coast have wanted to get out of D for ages now so i think if there is more D, I don't think it will have sixth edition written on it um at all i think it will just be re reprocessed and that's a terrible word to use because it makes it sound like it's just minced up ham or something <laughs> like that in a can i think they'll do a stand-up job with it but it, well, I don't think you'll see any fundamental changes now because it doesn't have to be. There doesn't have to be. And they've done they've done another clever thing, um, again, in the last five years, which is you were talking about they don't release much these days. They release loads. It's just they don't do it themselves. It's all outsourced, isn't it? It's all about DM's Guild and about um, all of their back catalogue being made available on PDF. They are making money hand over fist from their back catalogues. They don't have to take any punts on doing that. I think... The D&D design team, you could probably fit them in a Mini Cooper. There's just not that many full-time employees because they don't have to be anymore. And that's where, you know, where they've, that's a, the biggest games company going. So will there be a sixth edition? Not in a way that we know it. Um, and will it be in a hardback book in a store? Maybe not. Maybe it will be uh, purely electronic, um, but there might be some prestige stuff for the collectors who like to have stuff on a shelf. I, I think the way that people access D&D is going to be pretty different in five years, which means the rest of the industry will be pretty different in 10 years because that's what seems to happen. So, I mean, it will be interesting times, but uh, I think I think books will get more prestige and digital and online play will, get, will only get bigger from here on in. Hey, this is Jonathan Tweet, and I just want to say to Gaz and Baz, what a... Uh, great accomplishment is to hit 50 episodes, and uh, I'm looking forward to the 100th, so congratulations. So I think the context may change. What we've talked about in our discussion is about how uh, the last five years have been fueled by uh, social media and uh, uh, platforms to distribute um, material like podcasts. But I think that's mm. set to change. Um, it's it's been unregulated and it's um, been free in the main uh, most part and I think that's going to change because you can already see that governments are looking at ways 
of changing the status of um, internet platforms into publishing houses. And when that happens, it will change. You can talk about the ethics of that. That's a separate, separate thing. But you can see that that's going to happen. It's going to put more restrictions on content that's delivered through the internet. And also things like Twitter. You know, it's a lost leader. It's not making any money. And we've seen with uh, Google Plus that, you know, it's unsustain. It's an unsustainable model uh, to have social media um, free. Um, you can see that over the next five years, that subscription or contribution or some way of being part of that Twitter club is going to is going to occur. So that's inevitably going to have an effect on this upsurge that we've seen of uh, gaming activity. I think. Would you go to uh, your local po- post office to get a license to have a podcast? <laughs> Black and white or colour? Yeah. <laughs> Sepia. <laughs> Rose tinted, at least. <laughs> what do you say, guys? Answer your own question if you can, mate. I mean, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit and... Um, Obviously, none of us know exactly what the hobby's going to look like. Will we be doing episode 200 of What Would the Smart Party Do? Will the Jackson Elias boys be an issue 680 or whatever it is by then? I'm not sure. <laughs> Perhaps, Dirk, you'll have got to issue, I don't know. You, you, you do multiple, to be fair, you do like part twos and part threes of things, which is, you know, you're being hoisted by your own numbering system there, aren't you? I think game is just going to get stronger, isn't it? I can't see it. I, I, thankfully, at last, people stopped this perennial argument about RPGs are dead, computer games and board games are taking over, all that kind of stuff. Like, thank God, people have shut up about that now because that used to be depressing. Because mm. it went on for like decades, and role playing carried on in its own little way anyway. Because it was always about a small number of people who were very deadly passionate about it. Mm. It's not like a, a big thing where you need huge numbers. If a football stadium's only got a thousand people in it, then you know that team's dead. If, if a role-playing convention's got a 1,000 people, it's much rejoicing. Certainly in the UK, that'd be like one of the biggest conventions going. So there's definitely the online thing that'll make a difference. What I'd like to see um, is an improvement in online tools. So uh, I think there's mm-hmm. a, a system now called Alpha. I need to dig out. I posted it a while ago, um, which looks quite smooth, but it does look very D&D and have squares on it. And it's all about the lighting and what the characters can see and stuff like that. I think people have used Roll20 for a long time now, and it's very good, don't get me wrong, but you know the integrated audio and video is poor, so we tend to use Hangouts as a for that. So at that point, you really need it for maps and some tokens, and does it really... It just feels clutched together by a bunch of developers doing it at part-time, much like a lot of role-playing games and, and various other things in our hobby. So it'd be nice to see someone get hold of it and produce some good tools for smooth interactions across the internet. But I think we come back to that monetization question there that that might not necessarily be free. And it's at that point where does someone have to pay for that to make it happen? And will there be a link to computer games people? For example, if they've already got, I don't know, something like Discord or some voice messaging app, do they rent that out to role players then to enable their games? Because all the computer games chat to each other while they're playing Call of Duty or whatever else. So why couldn't you expand that a little bit and get role players included? As part of the service you provide to computer gamers, but just licenses out to use, so you can have rooms with people together with sharing screens and all that kind of stuff. So I think the next five years has got to include someone somewhere or a bunch of different platforms emerging to make it, if anything, even easier to game online uh, and fulfil the needs of gamers. Because it's like, it's just things like 
online dice rollers and then you have lots of games these days that have their own funky dice and it's easy enough making a dice roller for you know a bunch of d6 but when it's something like the new legend of the five rings and you've got some d12s and d6 and they've all got different symbols on and some symbols cancel out and you know it's just if, if there's one complaint you see of platforms a lot of times it's like oh it hasn't got a fake dice on it it's like well you can work it out from d6 do it yourself but it feels like to really expand to the next level we need an easy way of doing all that that might be a bit rambly about what I want to happen rather than what's actually going to happen, but I, I do think online gaming's more or less where it's at for a lot of people. Even good friends who can't be asked to go around each other's houses in the same town sometimes will do it. And we, I, I'm a little feared we might lose that social element. Like you've got you've got Milton Keynes uh, role playing club, Paul, haven't you? So you've got a regular place where a bunch of people get together and play. Yeah, I think that's and possibly been, uh... something I'm short of up here. We've been playing um, Tomb of Annihilation at a um, friend, well, you know, Robin's house. And uh, he's had a computer uh, monitor laid on the table. And we've used that as the map because we hooked Roll20 into it. So it's, it's the best of both worlds to me because you've got the, the, uh, the beautiful graphics of the, the published map and you've got actual 25mm figures stood on it. So it's, it's, it's a lovely combo. Uh, and I've been really enjoying getting back into D&D again in this last year. It's you know, I just sort of sat there and I remember the second session all went off down some uh, some some mines on the edge of town. Just to, They were like these garbage mines or something. And I think my character wasn't really involved. And I just sort of sat there and Robin was just describing all this stuff and uh, people were sort of rushing in and swinging swords and all that. I thought, oh, this is just really nice I was that you know I was that casual gamer just kind of sat there just part of the sat problem. back and yeah yeah it was great but I must say you know what you were saying about sixth ed uh, well sixth ed fifth ed Baz I think I agree I think it seems to be the most robust version of Dungeons and Dragons and I feel that I haven't sort of sat there thinking oh I wouldn't do it like that oh I think they should do this mm. rule like that at all I've just thought this is fun and I don't often feel that way about games. Um, mm. Not that they're not fun. I, I, I mean, about tweaking them. Guess how um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I wonder in the next five years, you know, who's going to write the next Apocalypse World? Because sure. that has been, like, massive over the last... Well, I mean, that came out in 2010, and then Dungeon mm. World and Monster Hearts 2012, so that's, like, six years ago. But... You know, that has spawned so many games. I mean, there must be like 100 hacks of that now. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something that Ken Hyatt mentioned as well. I sort of put, him, put to him the vampire question in terms of D&D was around with those, sort of like traveling those other games at one point, and then all of a sudden, bam, vampire came out. And are people going to move to vampire now because they've played D&D for a certain number of years or not? And, and he pointed out that that indie game movement was kind of that the vampire moment of its time. So in the next sort of five years, we are due another thing. I don't know what that looks like yet, but we do another shift, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I th- think with D&D, is it, over the next five years, is it going to be more about the setting uh, and developing settings? Because Ken Hyde's got a Hellenistic uh, set- setting coming out, hasn't he, soon? Uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so maybe that's the way they'll go. So leave the rules as they are and uh, develop some new settings that they can uh, market to people. We, we, we had the OSR games and stuff like that, and the, the big thing about them was people playing an old-school sort of D&D set-ish, but being able to do whatever they want with it and make crazy mm. settings up. And I'm wondering whether now 
D&D's almost become the new OSR in that the D&D sets so established and well understood and ha- pleases so many people. It was easy enough for lots of people that it will be about the settings that people just do their own thing, but you might as well use the D&D chassis because we all know it works kind of thing. It's a bit more lingua franca. Hmm. Yeah. And settings are rubbish anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like another podcast. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps a seminar for us at a next convention. Yeah. Settings are rubbish. Discuss. Yeah. It's just probably me against everyone, though. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Well, how do you how do you justify saying settings are rubbish when Colour Cthulhu is based entirely upon the setting? <laughs> <laughs> but ostensibly, it uses the kind of real world, is my get out there. So you, don't to, you don't have to learn a setting, is what I mean. Oh, you can't be asked learning stuff. That's, yeah, that makes that's, sense what, that's, that's the subtext of what I'm saying. Because <laughs> then you have to read books and stuff like that. So. Hello, agents. This is Dennis Detler, co-creator of Delta Green. I just want to say that Delta Green agents everywhere listen to Gaz and Baz on the UK's premier RPG podcast, The Smart Party. Well, it's an interesting question, actually, about Cthulhu, which... I've had in my mind for a little while. I, I, we've played together a few times in, in various games. Yeah, really. And I think one of the things that you seem to like about Call of Cthulhu games at conventions that I've, I've witnessed is you like them when it, there's an alternate setting, like it might be, say, in Afghanistan during the war, or it might be, I don't know, Africa in the 1960s or something. And you seem to get a lot more out of playing it in a different, unique setting, a learning, and like a detailed setting almost. To say you don't like settings, I think when you're playing the game, what I, I perceive, anyway, you might disagree, is that you seem to like a different, like something different about the setting. You're, you're less interested in what kind of creature or monsters behind what's going on and more in, engaging with this different environment. Although it's a real world one, ostensibly, you know. Yeah, I don't really recognise the, the thing about the setting so much, but certainly, you know, if I'm designing a scenario, often like I design the scenario and then at the end I sort of think, ought to put some sort of mythos monster in here out of the book <laughs> so it sort of seems like a Call of Cthulhu scenario you know because I mean? yeah. it could be anything right now but it's just a kind of a horror thing um, yeah. so yeah kind of you know bolt on a bit of mythos <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's not the case with the uh, Oklahoma chapter in uh, Two-Headed Serpent which is a fantastic setting it really comes to life uh, that dust bowl and there's more to it than just uh, a monster tagged onto it. Well, that's because I've just read Grapes of Wrath. Can't <laughs> <laughs> design yeah, the secrets. Yeah. Well, I'm not necessarily like I play lots of games. Like D and D's not necessarily my my preferred choice because I'm like Baz is Mister D and D, and I play everything else. So <laughs> that's kind of how we split things. <laughs> but to give an example, the last convention I went to at Seven Hills, I ran Mothership, which is a science fiction OSR game and I wanted to try out Things from the Flood which is the Stranger Things it's kind mm. of Swedish kind of game as well and I, the new Vampire was out so I ran that as well because there were like three newish games and I wanted to run all those things to try them all out which is good the the thing that might swing me back in the direction is something like Dark Sun for example when they polished that up uh, because that seems like an interesting setting I'm not really bothered about the mechanics necessarily but certainly settings are something that's going to draw me in what, what do you think Resident D&D expert Baz uh, well, I mean, Wizards of the Coast have, have been leaning on their their IP for quite some time now, really. And and over the last five years, what has happened is that once a year they bring out 
a big old hardback adventure. Sometimes it's it's outsourced to partner companies, but they bring out a big old hardback adventure, which is a callback to an old setting for D&D. So Tomb of Annihilation that you're playing, Paul, is based mm. on Tomb of Horrors. Sure. And we've had some stuff about Ravenloft with Curse of Strahd. And there's, there's been all kinds of stuff. And I think they'll just continue doing that. They've sort of put their toe back in the water with Eberron recently. And there's so many fans because because is just so big and it's got such a, a big storied history that if they want to put out a game and put Spelljammer on it, which was never that big of a deal in their library back in the day, but it is still orders of magnitude greater than just about any other role-playing company can produce. So if they want to do a Spelljammer game, they will have no trouble shifting units off of that. Um, their outsourcing model of letting other people do the stuff around it is amazing. You know, they don't even make their own minis or mats or anything now. They've just got other people to do that for them. They've, they, you know, they've cottoned on to the way the Games Workshop did things, which is, you know, let other people do it and they can just pay us money for the privilege of taking risks on our behalf. It's brilliant, really. Mm. So, you know, Eberron, Eberron will come. There's no doubt about that. D&D hasn't done anything innovative with settings for a very, very long time. In fact, Eberron would have been the most innovative thing, and that was as a result of a competition they ran. Um, and no one really knows what happened to all the other competition entries that they got for that one. Uh, fourth edition had a kind of a clutch together setting, which I thought was a, was great. It had loads of good stuff, but it, it never had a central book that you could go to for it, and it's not even got a central name, really. Some people call it Nentir Vale or Point Poland or all kinds of things like that. So D&D is remarkably conservative and always has been because it's got a remarkably conservative fan base. And that's the thing that's worth bearing in mind. They are the biggest in the hobby, but they're not the most innovative. And the innovation comes from other places, doesn't it? I think innovation within the D&D sphere is still happening at an OSR level. And the OSR community is like a churning broth of stuff. They goes through everything from people putting out little zines with tiny dungeons in it to just random tables to those beautiful artisanal books that we were talking about before with like you know the binding and and the top grade art and printed on linen. There's some still amazing stuff going on there that just uses D and D really as a badge for people to hang stuff off of. Um, so it's still it's still super vibrant. But don't look to Wizards of the Coast for the innovation. You know, the biggest thing that ever happened with D&D was when Pathfinder happened, which was the most retrograde conservative thing that could ever happen in gaming. As people who literally didn't want to move on to a new edition stuck with what they had and made what was for a time the biggest game on the planet <laughs> by not doing something innovative. I mean, that, that's just that's where that game is at, you know, and, it, and the other properties that we often talk about, you look at things like Warhammer, Warhammer's back with a vengeance and just doing brilliant stuff. But it's got a big old nostalgia ticket on it still. You know, it's bringing out the enemy within again for the third or fourth time. You will love it this time. Uh, you know, and that's what happens. So innovation and business don't tend to go hand in hand unless you're Apple. You know? and, <laughs> and gaming isn't at that level of technology, is it? Theatricality and deception. Powerful agents to the uninitiated. But we're not uninitiated, are we, I don't. I don't understand. What, why are you talking like that? Why don't you talk normal? It's not a car. Oh man, Batman Returns. That was kick-ass flick. Oh hey guys, Baz, what's up, brothers? It's Raphael, hollering at you from the colonies. Man, I can't believe you hit this milestone. You've been on the air for a hundred years. That's insane. I don't know how. I actually don't know how that's possible. But it'd be good for you. You know, happy anniversary. That's awesome. 
y'all let's get down Carolina way, look me up, we're going to celebrate, all right? And I'm going to get us some beers, and we'll drink them like civilized men, cold. And like my mama always said, Finglui, Mugwa, Nafa, Cthulhu, Rulier, Wagana, Gull, Photography. So, so at the end of uh, these next five years, so over this dec- a decade of uh, smart party podcasting, what <laughs> what game what games are we going to be nostalgic for that will have died during those ten years? He oh. wants to put the kiss of death on some games. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's do you know it's already happened. It's it's already happened. I do you do you ever think to yourself like what were the big darlings, the big massive word of mouth things of even eighteen months ago, or or, or even a year ago? where everybody I know went and bought it. And, and I'm not talking about those Kickstarters that take years to deliver, but often that's the case as well. And then when the, when the product sort of creeps out, it's it it's like, where's the fanfare for stuff like Over the Edge, Unknown Armies 3? Two games I'm passionate about. I think they're really, really great games. But a massive splash a couple of years ago, Apocalypse World 2nd Edition. Surely that's that's supposed to be a massive, massive deal. I don't know of anyone playing Apocalypse World Second Edition, and I don't know everyone. Clearly, none of us know everyone, but I just don't hear about playing people playing those games. And then you look at some of the other stuff that's that's come out. I don't think anyone would be playing Forbidden Lands in two years' time. Sorry, Forbidden Lands. I think you're quite good, but I don't think anyone would be playing you. Um, and I, and I can think off the top of my head of a dozen things that have come out to quite a lot of fanfare. That to go back to Paul's point from from a while ago now. Unless something's being released for it on a regular basis, people fear the dead game and they don't play it. And that's why it's dead. Yeah, I think there needs to be some kind of community as well, doesn't it? So one of the ones that's probably quite surprising seems to have gone bubbled under, and it's probably because it was such a big one at the time, is Blades in the Dark, which started out in its very early stages like an Apocalypse World game, but sort of evolved from out there to something very different now. But it's got a familiar feel to it. You kind of get a lot of the same history and DNA there. But when that was going through its two-year, or however long it was, playtest, people would not shut up about it. You couldn't go on any social media platform without millions of people to tell you about Blades of the Dark and how they were hacking it for this, that, and the other. And then once it was officially released, there was like a little tail, and then we're in that tail end that you talked about earlier, that I see every now and again someone's done like a a cyberpunk hack for it or something like that. But there's very little. When it was in playtest, you couldn't move for it. And now it's been released as an actual game, barely hear a word, mm. comparatively speaking. When when, uh, when we started playing again um, and uh, seeing what was available, Numenera was seen as like the big thing everybody was talking mm. about. And there was loads of stuff for it. Um, so we picked it up. But that seems like it's moribund. And it, you, know, you, don't, you don't hear of people playing it on a regular basis. I don't think there's a lot to Numenera. I, you know, as much as I like the the production values and Monty Cook's produced lots of stuff with his writing team. Um, actually, if you play the Cipher system, there's not a great deal to it. I played or ran a game uh, at one of the previous Sheffield conventions, and the feedback I got from one of the players was that it seems like I had the science stuff or I, I hit it, and that was basically that. It comes like every problem was solved by one of two things that you had a decent number in and rolled some dice against. And I think when you actually get into playing the game, you don't have that many options. It seems like you do, but the system's actually really simple and doesn't give you a lot of things to do. And from my own personal experience, looking at settings, for example, the Nine Worlds book and others, 
they're just really empty. They're, they're a bit kind of stone soup. I was expecting to get more. So, for example, there's um, an alternate future kind of uh, recursion in in one of the settings, which is that you know the Nazis won the world, the war, and all that kind of stuff. You're like, cool, this is going to be brilliant. And it's four pages that it tells you about like four people who are having a bit of a spat, and then there's a zombie in a mecha suit, and it's like, is that it? Like, I mean, gee, really, Nazis won the war, and this is all you've got to show me. Like, there's not hardly any game or content in it. And for me personally, and a lot of people love it, I've found that with their stuff, it, it, there's lots of great art which gives me ideas, but when you read the words, there's less gameable content than other books, for me personally. So it is, is there a community of people playing that? So it's something like uh, Call of Cthulhu, oh, D&D, and uh, those other games that seem to sustain the slings and arrows of... Um, the fortunes of RPGs as it fluctuates up and down, they seem to continue, you know, Glorantha will continue because there's enough uh, hardcore people to uh, keep keep the flame alive. For games like that, you know, in five years' time, will will, will they have a resurgence? I, don't, I think Multicut Games has got its own set of followers. Right. And I think there's a vampire community and I think, I think as Baz mentioned earlier on in this podcast, you know, everybody's fractionalised anatomized and there's lots of little groups that support their thing whether anything's ever going to be as big as the resurgence you get for RuneQuest, for call of cthulhu for traveler even and things like that you know the old classics from back in the day i don't know it's going to get to the point when all those lot are going to be in nursing homes aren't we and stuff <laughs> Still hopefully that's dice. not five years off but, <laughs> but i think some of those games have really broad scope so D. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, Traveller, maybe you know some of those games. They got a really broad scope, and you can play. You can just have that game, and you can play that game for a year. You could play in that game for ten years, twenty years. You know, you can't do that with like Dogs in the Vineyard or Night Witches or Dog Eat Dog or Ten Candles or something. You know, they're they're, they're little games that you play, and there's a buzz about them, and people want to play them. And you know, they run for like maybe a few sessions and then you've kind of done them and you move on to the next one they're like a scenario you know you play it and you've played that one so we'll play another one and there's there's a so i think you know it's kind of it's not really comparing like with like it might be holding them to an unfair standard you're right mate i mean i think i grew up with the with the notion that a role-playing game one of the unique things about it in comparison to your monopoly or the game of life or risk was maybe not risk is that you could play them for months years or even decades Mm. That was one of the USPs of a role-playing game, and that is still true of all the big brands that we've just mentioned. But yeah, you are—you're right, of course, mate. If you want to play Lady Blackbird, then you should treat that like you would treat renting a video from Blockbuster. <laughs> There's another <laughs> reference for you kids. You know, it's a one-shot, right? And it, and it, and when it's done, it's done, and and you could watch it again or play it again. Of course, mm. you could, but that's that's not going to be your hobby. And and I I, I come from the time when a game was a hobby. Where the hobby was a few games, and you could do it. I can't. I can't play all the games that I possess now, let alone the ones I don't possess and want to possess. If I, you know, if I was only buying things with my head, I would never buy anything. But you know, I, I can't get my arms around this hobby now. I can't play all the stuff we've got, and I think you know sometimes the issue is, and, and anyone of a certain age will say this, is that that gamer ADD is the thing that's stopping me playing games at all. And, and just you know, I wish there was a way past that, but there won't be as long as people keep bringing out cool new stuff that I just want to own, and then putting out the old stuff on PDF so that I can own it, and then other rapscallion podcasters keep talking about cool stuff that I want to possess as well. 
It's ridiculous. When am I going to ever get time to play stuff? I've got to get offline and stop buying it. This is Shane Ivey saying jazz and raz, I think it is. Congratulations on the 10th episode of the Hearts Marty. Okay, I'm just conscious of the time. It's going to be a bumper episode, no doubt, this one. But let's let's try and get back to the ranch again. So, um, Paul, I'll start with you. Uh, what's your like hopes and dreams? <laughs> That's not too big a scope of question, but what, what would you like to see in gaming in the next five years? Would you like, you know, a bigger audience, um, more popularity? Do you just want it to keep on as it is, roughly, but just be there? Or have you got anything you think of for the next sort of few years that you'd like to see? I think almost stability, uh, a kind of growth of a stable base in the hobby that we're seeing now. I'd like that to stick around. You know the the kind of fundamental games, you know the big ones like D and D, and you know I'd, I'd say Call of Cthulhu, and, and some of the the kind of older games, the big games that we've talked about, and not necessarily for those games to bring out you know amazing new editions or whatever, but just to have really solid like campaigns and scenarios and and a catalogue of stuff for people to actually play rather than you know flitting around from this and that, but also in parallel with that you know what i said about who's going to write the new apocalypse world that innovation of of indie games and i think the two can very much live hand in hand you know i can be playing my year-long campaign with robin but at the same time at at cons or you know just odd evenings we can be playing some of those one-shot indie games that are like innovative and, and really different and both of them are great that's what i'd like to see lovely how about you Dick? Well, for me personally, um, what I would like is something that uh, Paul's got, a club that I can go to and play with people in a physical space because, you know, I started this off by saying I don't see my family anymore. It's because I'm locked in this room playing online with uh, people. It's not because I'm getting out and uh, play. So that's what I would really, really like. As for the uh, hobby, you know, I've sounded fairly pessimistic about um changes in the circumstances but i just hope that it could sustain um not having um it to rely on uh, social media and all that kind of buzz to keep it going um and i would really like to see uh, the people who are emerging from the millennial generation coming up with some new ideas and seeing what they can bring uh, to the hobby because they're an untapped resource of ideas aren't they yeah i've not got our baggage of how we learned about games and what they actually exactly. mean. They've got their own ideas about what a game might be. How about you, Baz? Um, I, I think for hopes and fears, I mean, I, I hope we do reach 200 episodes of What Would the Smart Party Do? Because <laughs> uh, let's be honest, I don't know what you guys thought with your podcast, but we never thought we'd do 10, <laughs> let alone do 100. And, and bearing in mind, I'd had two decades of having the same old conversation with Gaz before we hit the record button. You can imagine how bored I am. <laughs> So I'd love to think that we've still got another 100 episodes in us of talking to people. And that does seem to be the case, you know, that we seem to have like a an endless line of, of great guests who want to come on, like yourselves, guys. And, and and the people who want to talk about gaming is 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 kind of my favourite thing about gaming is talking about gaming. Um, and I think what I would personally like is, that, you know, a bit of stability. I'd like to play some games with some systems for... Or let's see, more than six sessions that would count as a campaign, I think, by by modern standards, and and that, those are rare these days, mm. just because of you know life and stuff. So I'd love to see that happen, and 
and I think you know I don't think it's any secret you know Gaz and I have we've done more than just sort of dip our toe into writing and stuff over the last couple of years and I think you know the publishing arm of the smart party might start winding itself up faster and faster until the steam starts coming out of the engine um, and you know we start sending out mimeographed uh, bits of paper to the world and asking them to send us back a pound on a uh, stapled to an envelope in fact to smart party towers that might happen so it's just like the 1970s all over again in our world isn't it and that's kind of what i'm after that kind of homebrew homespun community feel six people around an actual table um drinking tea and eating biscuits that's that's the dream right yeah you're not wrong mate it made me laugh. Some of our younger listeners will be sat there thinking, how do you staple a pound to a card? And I have to inform you that back in the day when we were kids, they were made of paper with pounds, This like pound coins with this new revelation. It's like we've got real-world gold pieces, but you, know, that's, you staple it by making money out of paper and you know, shrapnel these coins. You'd sell a tape of 50p to a card, wouldn't you, and send it to a oh, stadium? Yeah. Of course you would. For, for the catalogue, yeah. You'd snip a bit out of the back of your book. Sort of fifty p to it to get a catalogue. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to see. I'd like to see some of that as well. I've not done that much real world role playing. Really, it just happens to be at conventions, and I'd like, I'd like it to be more socially acceptable to gaming public. And I think we're getting there. I think mm. lots of people now. I mean, I've I found out recently that in the old salutation and some of the pubs, people are playing games in Nottingham, and I I kind of feel like how dare you. Because I was there first when it wasn't acceptable and we used to get grief off people and <laughs> I was nearly thrown out of the old trip to Jerusalem because I was playing Deadlands with poker chips and they thought we were gambling. <laughs> we wouldn't believe that we were <laughs> pretending to be, you know, spellcasting shamans and stuff. It's like, you're clearly gambling. Get out. And turfed out on our ear. <laughs> so it would be good. I'd like to see that, that trend continue of role-playing becoming more mainstream and, and gaming in general so that people can just do it like, like probably... Our fathers and grandfathers used to play dominoes or cribbage in the pub. That in a few years' time, there's people just playing random games of D and D or whatever else, and it's just like normal. That'd be cool. Uh, hey, everybody, Victor Temple here. Uh, I'm looking to expand the Temple of Boom property into some new areas of entertainment, including podcasting. And it's come to my attention that a show called what would the smart party do is about to hit his 100th episode so i wanted to invite you all over to the valley for an all expenses paid trip that you will never forget i would love to have you for dinner 200 episodes sounds like a chore now when we're just doing it randomly <laughs> it's how the listeners feel <laughs> you know, they're like good oh god i thought it was gonna be the last one that's why i've tuned in <laughs> you know what we said we thought we might do 10 Telling me I'm going to do another hundred feels like you're setting me a target. Now. Like, that feels like Sorry, work. Mate. We could always do a Ziggy Stardust and break up live on stage. <laughs> cool. Well, maybe we will all be done, and there'll be new people putting out exactly, podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of people putting out podcasts anyway, right? But you know, no, they're not. No, just us. Yeah, <laughs> there are none. They're putting out YouTube channels. That's what they're doing. Oh, making, damn them kids! Making bank, as I was asked one time at Content Union. Okay, well, you're that guy for smart party. It's like, yeah, I'm one of them. It's like, do you make bank? I was like, if that means money, no. <laughs> I do not make bank. <laughs> but thanks for asking and thinking that we might. So I think with that, we're circling towards the end of this celebratory 100th edition podcast. So I, I, 
It heaves me to say thank you to all our patrons, listeners, supporters, people who've liked us on iTunes, shared our content, given us some feedback, because uh, it's all that that really keeps us going. Otherwise, it's just me and Baz chatting, and as you've heard, he's bored of that already. <laughs> I'd like to personally thank Ian McAllister for stepping in when, when it all gets too much for me and being the greatest supply podcaster we know. And thanks very much to you, uh, Dirk and Paul, for coming on and helping us celebrate this particular centenary edition. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Shall we crack open these twiglets, mate? Yeah, yeah, yeah you might as well, mate. Yeah. Well, they're no yeah. hobnobs. I'll have a can of Stones bitter. <laughs> I think you left one in the bath. And to you, dear listeners, hopefully we'll see you at a convention soon. Maybe Grogmeat, if you're a fan, and if you're not, you should definitely follow the Grognard files and get involved with their stuff. And of course, if you like a bit of horror, then the good friends of Jackson Elias is your one-stop shop for all things you could possibly want to know. And one last thing before we go, dear listeners. Good friends of the show, Phil and Paul, uh, all rolled up, have offered us some free gaming accessory merch to give out to one of our loyal listeners. All you have to do for this little competition is think of what would a smart party character look like. You can use any system. You can model it on me or Baz or any of our glorious guests. Send us your entry to the smart party at hotmail.com and we'll select the finest. Or maybe roll a die. And if you are at a convention sometime soon, don't only say hello to us, say hello to Phil and Paul at All Rolled Up because they're great guys and it's great to see a proper geeky business that's been grown from the ground up doing so well. Until next time, bye for now.